I mean, so many, so many startups right now, yeah, have values somewhere up on their wall and post them on LinkedIn, blah blah blah. But I, I bet you, a little amount of of founders, if you would walk up to them now and ask them what their values are, um, would be able would be able to state them. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hi, folks. Dries here. Welcome to the newest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast. Today, I'm happy to introduce to you WAU alum and serial entrepreneur Moritz Weisbrot. Together with his compagnon de route, Gabriel Tomala, Moritz founded in 2016 Kaya Health, offering AI-assisted digital therapies via a mobile app for chronic pain. In 2020, Moritz and Gabriel started a new adventure, creating the company Alaiko, which is a fulfillment as a service platform for SMEs. At the beginning of this year, Alaiko announced the closing of a $30 million Series A round with notable investors such as Next47 and Tiger Global Management. We are looking forward to hear the story of Moritz and we hope you will enjoy the show. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Moritz, welcome and great to have you here on the most awesome founder podcast. Thank you for having me. It's uh, exciting and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Great. And as always, we want to start with some personal storytelling. Uh, so I want to actually give you the floor and maybe tell us a bit about your entrepreneurial trajectory that you already had behind you, because I think that's quite an exciting trajectory to talk about. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so as you as you mentioned already, um, so I, I got a rather boring background in, in, in business and management, <laughs> if you want to say so, and that's <laughs> for my co-founder. Yeah, so both of us um, studied uh Joke Society, which we're really proud of at, at WHU, of course. Um, me doing my bachelor's and my master's there. Um, Gabriel, um, just as bachelor's. And then um, for sometimes for two years, our careers kind of like have separated. Um, he was focusing a bit more on the product and tech side of things. And then uh, after these two years, our, our journey came back together um, as both of us started working at Rocket Internet back then, uh, scaling a food delivery company. Um, and, and that's that's how uh, yeah, how we really got in touch with entrepreneurship um, for yeah, almost the first time. Yeah, so up until then, I really thought that my career would completely go into a different direction. And um, yeah, and and uh, we've been on that entrepreneurial career path ever since. Yeah, yeah. So up until today, we have um, founded uh, three companies, um, one of them. Um, as you already mentioned, um, Kaya Health, which is a digital therapeutics company. Um, with this one, we went down the typical fundraising roadmap yeah, from uh, pre-seed VCs um, up until Series C. Yeah. And um, then after that, um, we are parallel to that. We founded a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, 
um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> comparable, a much, much smaller business, uh, I think 10, 10 people working there as of now. Um, and that's how we got in touch with e-commerce and then logistics. Yeah. Uh, also how the idea of Alaiko was born, um, yeah, which we've been um, operating now um, on for more than two and a half years. Yeah, so um, founded that in April 2020. And um, as you said, recently raised raised our Series A. So it's been uh, a fun and a, and a bunch full of learning so far. Yeah. And I think if you look at that journey, it's clear that you're quite a risk taker, not? It's uh, starting new companies from scratch, even in different industries. And, and I'm always interested to, to actually find out, is there something in your childhood that already gave a strong indication that you would become this risk taker? Is there any story you can tell about how in your childhood maybe already the, the scene was set to become this serial entrepreneur, heavy risk taker or, or, or not? Um, I think it's, it's kind of like hard to pinpoint it down to one event. Um, okay. But what I would say is that I've been and still are uh, super curious and I get easily fascinated uh, by completely different topics. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, uh, so this really led from um, me changing my my hobbies back then um, on like a yearly basis <laughs> okay. um, towards uh, yeah also moving a bit into my high school as well as university years. Uh, so doing like completely different um, internships uh, and really from from uh, banking to startups to large corporates to small companies. Yeah, so it's. It's really about uh, trying out and, and understanding how things work. Yeah, that's what I'm really fascinated by. Um, and uh, also a big fan of, of documentations um, on a side note. Yeah, so if you would put me in front of a TV teaching me how, I don't know, uh, how a car works and how a, why a plane flies, yeah, that's, that's how you get my interest. Okay. And, um, yeah, and I think that really also shows shows when you when you look into the different um, companies that that we've been working on. So uh it's it's it i think what's important to mention and what's kind of like um the thing that they have in common is that um within the the founder circle we has we have always experienced one of the problems that we're trying to solve um quite closely um yeah, yeah. so um, back at rocket internet for example um fudora especially sparked my interest because i i, I was fully in on on the value proposition uh, of having delicious food delivered to your home uh, instead yes. of um, and not so nice uh, dishes um when it comes to to kaya one of our co-founders was um was suffering from uh, chronic back pain back then yeah. um so he had to undergo physiotherapy offline once okay. a week thursday i mean you know it probably uh, 3 p.m. How are you going to do that if if you if you have a job? Yeah. Um, and and back then many of us were doing uh, and engaging a lot in these um, fitness uh, online exercise tools like Freeletics, for example. And then we kind of like thought, okay, why not combine both of it together? Um, and then during during Kaya, um, I was uh, in in negotiations with the NHS uh, in England. Yeah. Um, so I was traveling a lot back and forth and, and, and getting healthy food was really a problem for me. Okay. Um, and, and, and the UK supermarkets were much more developed. Uh, so they had these nice juices and healthy shots. Um, and we didn't have them in Germany back then. And that's how the idea of the direct to consumer e-commerce business uh, was born, where we are selling ginger shots. Um, yeah. And then, um, while scaling that business, uh, 
We obviously had to get in touch with logistics. We changed the fulfillment provider, logistic provider three times. Um, and uh, once again, like really saw a big potential of how automation and tech um, could change uh, an industry for the better. Yeah. Um, and that that's how we now switch to fulfillment. Yeah. And, and if I listen to your story, I think it's quite fair to say that, that I would kind of classify you as a generalist, as somebody that can easily jump from one setting to the other, apply some core principles, but still feels comfortable moving from one way to another. And actually, a question that I often get from my students is, should we try to become a specialist in something or should we try to create a broad profile? So, so you seem to be in favor of the broad profile, if I see it like that. Um, I think it, it can be perceived uh, that way, um, but maybe like speaking a bit of of departments, um, yeah. So and, and maybe also tailoring my answer to to the case of of Gabriel and me. So um, we are super complementary to each to each other, um, not just yeah. when it comes to interest. Yeah. So he's, as I said, really on the product and tech side of things, and I've um, I always had everything that's that's commercially related um, to to be uh, to be in favor for me. And um, and uh, also from a personality type of things, we are quite a complementary setup. Okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm basically much more the communicator and like to engage with people and be on, on selling events. Um, and that's also where where I would describe my main strengths around. Yeah, so I think one part of 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 um, being a good founder or at least a personality type that you should have in your founding team, um, yeah. Yeah, someone who's able to to sell and to excite and to television, um, be pioneering because you, you won't only need that for, for new hires or for getting new partners on board or for selling to new customers, but also to uh, eventually fundraise. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm totally on board with you on, on, I do have a general role. Um, but I think what, what we've been become or what we became really good of good at is, um, really getting to the core of problems um yeah so really like that problem solution skill set is something that that we've been able to to double down on quite heavily and and then you kind of like become industry agnostic um yeah. Yeah, because you you just focus on on how to improve things for the better and as long as you do that closely related to the customers um and ideally even having been in a position where you have experienced that problem by yourself, I think that that makes it really easy to develop a great solution. Yeah, so you're actually aiming, you can develop some skills that you can actually easily then apply in different industries because although it's very different industries, the core principles are often quite the same in the end. Yeah. yeah. Okay, makes sense. Now, and again, you have a very fascinating kind of trajectory, having created companies in different settings. Now, at least that's what I teach to my students, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think these trajectories are always a roller coaster. So there are highlights, but there are also moments that it's getting very tough and might be very stressful. And of course, typically in podcasts, we tend to focus on the, the highlights, but I think it's also nice if you can share with us some examples of moments where maybe uh, it was more stressful, more challenging, and, and how you dealt with these kind of challenges. Absolutely. Uh, and happy to, um, because that's that's <laughs> how you learn eventually. Um, yeah. So maybe we, maybe we we categorize them in, a bit in in uh, into the zero to one stage and the growth stage, and because yeah. I think also your role as a founder changes quite trem uh, tremendously um, between these stages, um, and it and it 
never stops changing. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I think one of the the big big learnings that we we made from from um, the first company was that you almost have to get un- uncomfortably close to your to your target audience and to the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and uh, because that that will eventually also make you become more um, convinced. Yeah, it's it's hard to convince others if if you haven't managed to convince yourself first. Yeah. So it's a lot about how do you build up um, the courage, how do you build up um, the conviction, um, and you do that simply by validating. Uh, so it's it's quite a logical process. Yeah. So setting up hypotheses, validating them. Yeah. And so how do you validate? You need proof. How do you collect proof? Not sitting uh, at the home office table. Uh, yeah. by your so you have to get out you have to get out of the building um and uh talk to potential customers investors partners about your idea um and you can do that um like in the beginning we always thought okay we need at least something to show them we need an mvp blah 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 and and we were trying to to build that on our own in our apartment first yeah. which is completely not true yeah just use mockups and and get out there and and get some data um, yeah. i think that's that's something that we have adapted over time um, and, and really changed our our way of thinking around that quite heavily. Um, and and even nowadays within Alaiko, as we're launching new products, new services, um, and 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 it's not us doing it anymore, but yeah. uh, um, entrepreneurs that we get on board. Um, yeah, so entrepreneur in resident roles, for example, um, it's uh, we we try to teach them uh, this a lot. Yeah, so. Yeah. Why are you here in the office? <laughs> and <laughs> and yeah, uh, you should be talking with our customers, not yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and, and and I think that that changes obviously um, over time because as as your role changes a lot. Um, so and I think I think one thing that that uh, we also had to learn was that your that it's definitely uh, it could be the case that your ideal customer profile, yeah, so your ICP, the person and or the the company you're you're selling to in a B two B case, um, might change over time, yeah? Yeah. And, and something that we, for example, uh, didn't experience that lot uh, or that often in the past companies, but had to experience now at Alaiko, um, yeah. Yeah, so as our um, software side of of our offering was um, developing quite fast. Um, the ability of what uh, an e-commerce merchant could do while using the Alaiko software um, has has grown to an agree uh, to a degree which which uh, has a lot to do with um, automation. Um, so initially, we thought we were selling to smaller e-commerce merchants, but in a small shop, there's not much to automate. Yeah? And if yeah. you compare an e-commerce shop that already has 60 employees and is getting hundreds and hundreds of emails uh, saying, where's my parcel? I want to change an address. I want to return something. When do I get my refund? Blah, blah, blah. And so this is something where where we had to acknowledge, okay, so our software is really pulling us into a different segment here um, and we need to be flexible um, and adapt um, because a different target segment will change so much in your organization. Yeah. Who are the people selling to these prospects? Uh, how is communication and messaging um, looking like? Will the website change? The materials, the processes, and so and that's something that we kind of like had to learn and was a challenge um, back then because it also led to personal changes, uh, personnel changes, um, um, uh, which which uh, yeah are, are always um, tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that's. 
that's one thing. Um, then uh, something where um, I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of when I look now at Alaiko, um, but was also like a learning we kind of like had to undergo through um, in the past was uh, the importance of culture um, okay. and values. Um, yeah, because if you are a small company, uh, you can be, or you can at least try to be everywhere every time. Um, and that will heavily change as, as soon as you scale. And now within these two and a half years, we've ramped up. Um, so taking any personnel that is um, in the warehouses out of the equation, and we've now ramped up to 120 yeah. FTEs across, across um, five different locations. Um, and uh, that does something to an organization and it does something to culture. Yeah. Uh, and... and um, it's a it's a super emotional topic for me because I I uh, I put so much work into it and and I and I know how to how to get a lot out of it yeah, but it requires hard work to not just recruit the right people but also develop um, the right people into becoming culture ambassadors yeah, okay. and sure that your your company values your leadership principles um, are being passed on yeah, because at some point in time you obviously cannot be um, anywhere anywhere anymore. Yeah, um, everywhere anymore. And, um, and can you maybe explain a bit more how you're trying to do that? Because I think this is this is a very fascinating topic. And mm -hmm. I think today we hear about things like quiet quitting, and that mm -hmm. people no longer want to do kind of the additional mile for their company. That because of virtual work, it's much more difficult to build a culture in companies. So, so how are you trying to address that that topic? How are you trying to make sure that employees really function as a cultural ambassador for Alico? Um. So maybe once again, trying to split the advice for for someone who's just starting and, and yeah. where the, the company may, might be bigger already. So I think um, culture is something that will not develop by itself. Um, culture is something that you need to make your mind up about before you start hiring the first person. Um, okay. uh, and, and and this is something that we really had to learn in the past um, and which we now applied at Alaiko. Yeah. So me and my co-founder, before hiring the first employee, sat down on a table. We did like not just, I mean, so many, so many startups right now, yeah, have values somewhere up on their wall and post them on LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. But I, I bet you a little amount of, of founders, if you would walk up to them now and ask them what their values are, um, would be able, would be able to state them. Um so let and, me first ask, what are your values? Um, so for us we have kind of like we have four company values in total yeah? okay um and we kind of like categorize them into uh, one core value um and then three additional values and the core value that we have at alaiko is uh, heartiness um because uh again circling around the question um what kind of company do you want to build yeah you have to ask yourself is it the uh I'm, I'm, I'm like exaggerating now, but is it like the the soulless company that is just numbers driven and output yeah. oriented? Yeah, yeah. Or do you actually want to build something um, sustainable where you um, won't find quiet quitters, where you um, will people, where you will will work with people that you um, look forward to seeing in the morning when you walk into the office, yeah. um, where you find people that. Um, having fully vested um, their equity packages uh, tell you, I want another one. I want four more years. Yeah, I want to stay yeah. here beyond that. Yeah, so I think that that is something that that you really have to make your mind up about. So what kind of company you want to build? 
Um, and we did that um, prior to, to to our first hire and and it circled really around so meaningful connections and heartiness. Um, then the second thing is is something that I see in a lot of companies um, being stated as a value, but I, I do not see it live there. Um, and that's the topic of ownership. And yeah, so I think mm-hmm. uh, you you have to be fine with things not going 100% your way. Okay. Um, and if someone is able to do something 80% the way you like it, uh, in terms of how to scale yourself, you should probably be able to delegate it and let go. Uh, and um, yeah. and uh, what we also had to learn in the past that the topic of ownership is is something that you need in order to attract the right talent. You know, otherwise, you will just have people who are waiting for orders. You know, but that's that's not how you scale a company successfully. So that's yeah. also something um, a value that we've been um, thinking about a lot. Um, then the third value that we have is um, how to create win-win-win outcomes. Uh, so um, especially in the context of Alaiko, as we have, as we not just have the the e-commerce shop, but also the people shopping online, and then you have last mile carriers like DHL, UPS, DPD, Hamis. Um, you got um, warehouse sites. You got uh, inbound uh, carriers like uh, Kuna Nagel, DB Schenker. Yeah? So it's uh, logistics is is quite complex, but mm. you can even scale it down to to basically any in a department situation, you will you will find um, little tasks or little situations where where just two stakeholders are involved, um, and if there are appearingly just two stakeholders involved, there will be second order effects on on other stakeholders that you might not be thinking of in the beginning. Yeah? So for us, it's really important to to um, to get people on board who who I don't like the term, but like kind of like think outside the box and, and and think beyond the stakeholders that they have right in front of them and yeah. create a win-win-win outcome. And yeah, because that's also something which which I perceive to to really be counting in on on the sustainability aspect of of, of company building. Yeah, because only uh, a situation where where every partner wins um is is a situation that is long lasting. Yeah. Um, and then the last and fourth value is uh, chasing progress. And so circling a lot around challenging the status quo. And I think it has a lot to do with, with um, also like our entrepreneurial uh, career so far, um, yeah, because we've been jumping back and forth uh, between different industries um, and uh, yeah, never took anything for granted. And uh, even though people were saying, oh, we always did it that way. And it's probably a good sign that <laughs> you should do it differently now. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, and and this is, so these are the four values. So it's, it's um, meaningful connections and heartiness, ownership, win-win-win outcomes, and and chasing progress. And um, yeah, and we really managed to kind of like make up our mind about that um, yeah. from early, early on. Um, and then specifically, you have to be specifically um, hard about who are your first hires because they will have a major impact on culture. Yeah. They will have... Um, proven a major impact um on on financial performance in the end yeah and uh and and that's something that that we've been um quite good at i think um and now jumping a bit into the later stage of a company mm-hmm. so how do you get new joiners up to speed on that um yeah so 
uh, for us, even though we do a lot of remote hires, um, we have quite intensive onboarding weeks uh, here on site in Munich, in our headquarter. Yeah, so even the people that we now hired in the UK, for example, um, we have them fly over and spend two weeks with us. Um, and a lot of that onboarding is, yes, partially circling around how's I like working, blah, blah, blah. Um, but a big portion is is exactly um, circling around that. And uh, and it's uh, there's always some secret source to it yeah so uh, thinking back of my time at whu i there were multiple times where i asked myself so what is different in the in the administration uh, process how do they select students where where i like to spend time with 99 percent of the people that are in my class mm -hmm. uh, and uh yeah so it's 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 also a lot about who do you put in charge um to select the right people um, yeah. How do you establish hiring committees? Um, and then maybe on a last advice learning um, that is really specifically tailored to the recruiting process. So up until today, uh, we still have founder interviews in place. And so okay. there's not a single person in the company that we haven't seen prior to joining. Okay, um, It's small conversations, little like 30 minutes slots. Um, and they mainly focus around two topics. Uh, one is cultural fit, but that's not something that I test in, in sort of, these are my three cultural fit questions. Um, that's rather something that, that comes throughout the conversation while discussing about the second topic, um, and that is expectation management. Okay. Uh, and, uh, so my most favorite question is, is what has been sold to you so far? Yeah, pitch me pitch me the role that, that we're sitting here um, yeah. um, uh, about together. And... Um, and uh, yeah, and I think that that's how you can have um, an impact and make a difference. Yeah, and I think it's very intriguing that that you do this this heartiness as a kind of core value. Because to be honest, as an outsider, I would not quickly link the logistical industry <laughs> with the concept of heartiness, which I think is also then challenging for you because it's not only you recruiting people that fit with the values, but you also need to attract people that can represent that value. So so how how can you make sure that in that kind of industry that is typically seen as a kind of a hardcore rational industry where it's all about maximization of efficiency, that you can attract people that have kind of this feeling for the hardiness core value that you want to really have in your company? How do you do that? Um, so maybe splitting between inbound and outbound. Yeah, so outbound, our talent acquisition team, I think, yeah. uh, again, it's been really about who do you put into these seats? Okay. Uh, yeah, and are they able to to spot that um, yeah, sense quite quickly in, in first conversations? Uh, and when it comes to, to inbound or advertising or recruiting events, um, we we are using it um, quite, quite dominantly um, in our communication. Yeah? So you will find um, videos on, on our job platform where, people um, that have been working here now for uh, yeah, almost as, as long as, 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 as we're working on Alaiko um, will tell you what it means and why it makes a difference. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm totally with you. It's not common. Um, and you have to educate about it. Um, mm. But finding the, the people where, where, where this mindset matches, um, you're, you're getting so much out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and and how do you deal with that today? Because of course, I, I remember I, I looked at the press releases when the the thirty million Series A round was announced beginning of this year. 
Mm-hmm. And almost all of these press releases started like e-commerce is booming and uh, the fulfillment companies are the ones that are the shovels for the gold diggers, that kind of story. I think quite quickly, the story has changed. Huh? <laughs> I think today, not a lot of people will say that e-commerce is booming. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to go into the financials and stuff like that, but it's more about how in this kind of, I suppose, more challenging period in time, how are you able to kind of keep up this culture of heartiness, whereas I can Im- imagine that you need to make difficult decisions nowadays. Mm. Um, so it's it's really, I think it's a lot, it has a lot to do with with the level of empathy that you have when you talk to partners. Um, yeah, so it could be partners on the logistics side who need to raise prices. Um, yeah. It could be a partners on the shop side where uh, not just yeah, recent economic changes, but also technical changes like uh, an iOS iOS update, um, which made it uh, quite heavy to advertise online. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, is 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 basically applying pressure from both sides. Um, and I think b- being right in the middle um, um, of that situation um, provides you with the ability to to help both parties at the same time. Yeah, so. Um, when I'm when I'm kind of like referring a bit to the value proposition of Alaiko, yeah. uh, you can really split it into into two parts. Yeah, one, um, and that is um, extremely uh, logistics slash automation related, uh, is circling around cost saving. Uh, yeah. So many e-commerce brands, and and maybe before we jump into that, I on a side note, so so um, with Alaiko we are targeting larger e-commerce brands. Yeah, so it's it's not the small Shopify merchant that has okay. just started out. Uh, it's it's rather the the e-commerce business that is already generating 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million uh, in revenue per year. Um, yep. and, uh, and 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 that's kind of like slightly a different segment. Um, but but anyways, it's it's two segments of the value proposition. One is really circling around um, automation and um, via automation cost saving, improving yep. your footloaded costs. Um, and, uh, I think this is kind of like where the, where the business education <laughs> was helpful. Um, yeah, so to, to also use empathy to, to change, um, perception and yeah, so engage in customer conversations and tell them, so, Hey, people, we've been operating a D2C business ourselves or yeah. so somehow, um, and we know the situation you're in, um, but we also know and we see it with other customers how you can turn that situation into one that is maybe even a bit profitable for you yeah because yeah. all the end consumers are um, aware that the prices are rising uh, yeah so it's not going to be you raising your prices currently and everyone's going to be angry about it yeah mm-hmm. so and uh and it's it's a common thing that that pricing and price increases are being passed along the value chain um uh, which of course has an impact on on end customer budgets in the end but uh yeah, that's something where we can also educate the e-commerce shop owners not to be 100% afraid of. Yeah, it, it Obviously, it also, again, depends on the industry that they're in. But if you're selling a cosmetic product um, that already comes with a basket value of 90, 100 euros, people are not going to be carrying that much if it's now 92 or 96. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there are ways to to kind of like pass that down the line where we help. And I think empathy and heartiness is helping in in that manner Um, and that's value proposition one and then value proposition part two 
is um, is circling a lot around how can we not just save costs but help the shops make more money. Uh, okay. um, how can we increase conversion rates? Uh, how can we uh, bring up customer retention? Um, how can we increase brand um, ratings, for example? Um, and we've we've done that um, again by using tech. Um, um, one really vivid examples are um, tracking pages. Yeah, so if you are shopping something online and an e-commerce shop provides you with a link and that link is sending you to DHL UPS, where you as an end customer have to type in your your code, which you don't have at hand. Uh, and once you typed it in, you're somewhere lost on the page and you don't even know what kind of like, what kind of parcel is this actually, because I've ordered yeah. three different shops. Yeah, so it's not a nice experience. And, and um, we are building personalized um, uh, tracking pages. Um, so you, for example, would get a different tracking page based on uh, whether you are a first-time customer or whether you are a recurring customer, okay. whether you are sitting in France or in Germany or in um, the UK, um, yeah. whether your basket value is 60, 100 or 150 euros. Uh, and and we're kind of like changing the post-purchase experience um, uh, really to a way where you can where you can get much more out of um, the customers that you have already acquired, which in the end has a really um, positive impact on customer retention. Um, yeah, so and, and there again, it was empathy and heartiness helping us to um, understand the situation that they're in and also convincing them that, hey, we are not just your fulfillment provider. Yeah, we're not just the ones um, building the shovel for you to make more money, but we want to um, help you in doing that. Um, and we see a lot of great ideas in, in, in other e-commerce businesses. So why not share that, create some sort of community um, yeah, so where tricks are, are being passed along. So it's, um, yeah, so it's, and that's working quite well for us. Yeah. So it's a bit like we see the empathy, the, the hardiness as a kind of foundation that helps us to bring our value proposition to the customers. And, and is it also how you want to differentiate yourself from the competition? Because of course, this is a field where there are quite some competitors or, or should I see that in a different way? Um, I think you can see it that way, even though I haven't actively proactively phrased it that way in the past, yeah, but, um, mm. I think that the the putting yourself into the shoes of the customer ability, being obsessed about being uncomfortably close to your audience, um, is something that help us uh, helps us um, to stay a bit more uh, innovative um, compared to our competition. Yeah, so, okay. uh, and I think that's 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 something that. Uh, has helped us in the past and still helps us in, in winning deals. Yeah, you know, that uh, from an outside perspective, you can say there are many, many logistic and fulfillment companies yeah. um, out there, but the the difference really comes to light once you engage into a product demo and really understand the full load of value um, okay. that has um, yeah, that is provided, can, provided by the software. Yeah, can you explain a bit how you really do that? Because of course, I, I think. Almost every fulfillment uh, company will say we are customer centric and we take customer first principles and we will get close to you as much as possible. So, in terms of the message, I think mm -hmm. still everybody gives the same message. But so, how can you 
actually convince your customer that you are really different in that way, that you really take it seriously? It's, um, it actually has something to do with the model. Yeah? So if you look into that fulfillment logistics space there, um, you can categorize them on an x-axis, let's say, um, where you have asset uh, heavy on the left and asset um, light on the right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so asset heavy being companies that are uh, operating and owning warehouse sites completely on their own, um, which I do not think is a super smart idea because as a startup, you're probably not the best person and entity to, to know how to run a warehouse. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the asset light category, on the very far end, uh, you will find players that um, are set out to integrate into many, 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 many different fulfillment providers. Um, which means many, many different API integrations, which means um, the more players you have, of, it, it comes with some sort of overhead on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, it comes with uh, a less deeper technical integration. And um, what um, we have built at Alaiko is uh, a hybrid model, um, which means that we've been scanning the market um, for quite some time. I think I've visited 42 warehouses on site, um, and we've been really trying to find which are the triple A warehouses, yeah, so um, yeah. state of the art logistics that are already fulfilling um, for direct to consumer e commerce businesses. Um, so we stumbled across companies that have the largest D2C brands you would know, um, and uh, in the DACH as well as the European region, mm. and then kind of like engaged in, in some sort of a hybrid operating model where we have dedicated warehouse sites um so it feels like it's our warehouse um okay. <laughs> and the benefit is uh we are still asset light um and but we have an influence on processes uh hardware software that's being used yeah. uh, we have people on the ground um but not the full workforce uh, but rather just the the white collar workers that are in charge of the processes um, yeah. and that's something that that um we we haven't seen out there. Um, yeah, so some some players are trying to to copy it now and are, are moving into that direction, um, which is flattering. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's that's always the case, and 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 I think also from a business finance perspective, um, the, the the topic of capital allocation is really important here um, because yeah. um, the asset light category will uh, asset heavy category will invest and needs to invest heavily in in assets. Yeah. Um, which means that yes, they own the processes because they own the warehouse, but we also own the processes and can use our full funding to invest that into software development. Uh, yeah. So I think the the level of and the amount of focus that that lands initially on how much do we speak to our customers and what kind of features are we able to be developing at the same time, um, yeah, is is fundamentally based on the business model somehow. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, you clearly illustrate how actually different companies can take very different choices and how you have taken kind of the, the bold choice to be in the middle. Not so that's that's a bit uh, not completely to the left, not to the right, but try to combine a bit best of both worlds uh, in that way. Yeah, interesting. Okay, maybe um, to kind of uh, move a bit to the end, um, let me take or ask a, a broader question. Um, so as mentioned, uh, you, you were actually at ID Lab last week in Wallander with the WAU students. So I hope that was a bit of nostalgia for you. 
But um, if you need to give some advice to these students about if you look back at your career and they ask you for, in general, some advice, what they should do with their career, what would be your advice for them? Or maybe what would you do different that you have done before? Um, so obviously, one of the advices now has to circle around heartiness. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm going to start with that. So the team and the culture is the heart of the company. Yeah. So um, the saying culture eats strategy for breakfast, blah, 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 is actually true. Um, yeah. So if you are able to invest and by invest, I do not mean financially um, in building a strong company culture from day one. Um, and if you are able to kind of like uh, also use that mindset when it comes to assessing the right candidates um, and uh, assessing them based on cultural fit, and yeah, that is an investment that will pay off um, heavily. Uh, and I think one one guiding question that, that really helps here is um, also circling around asking yourself whether you want to spend um, yeah, at least during the period that, that you're working in that company, whether you want to spend um, a huge portion of your life um, uh, with that person um, yeah. and, and whether you could picture yourself on the one hand celebrating wins together and on the other hand um, yeah, going through uh, the downs of that uh, roller coaster yeah. ride you just described. Um, I think uh, a second one, I would circle it a lot around um, the aspect of, of leadership and trust um yeah so uh i'm um, um, um maybe you you have heard of the, uh, the pyramid of uh, team dysfunctions um by no. <laughs> patrick, patrick uh, lincioni um, okay it's a super great um model uh because it it he he managed to to prove that the the results and the outcome um so the output of a team uh is proven to be connected to the trust that you provide that team with yeah so, yeah. so trust being a product of of uh of uh, credibility of uh, reliability of empathy of intimacy um yeah so uh, investing in in these relationships investing in in building trust not being afraid of letting go um has a direct impact on on the results and i know from also like a lot of uh, angel investments that that it's it is a hard thing for a founder yeah, to let go because it's kind of like your baby and then that's something that yeah. um, you just have to learn um and then the last advice um i would say is uh invest in your personal development um yeah because your role is changing so fast and yeah. uh, and also in terms of uh how to develop um colleagues uh it it doesn't always have to be like the super expensive uh, leadership coach and it, it could start as simply as uh, following uh, key opinion leaders in your industry um yeah. listening to talks yeah so there there are little little mistakes that that haven't been done um by someone else in the past and uh yeah, trying to find mentors um and and learn from best practices yeah, so that's that's something i would probably circle this whole thing around yeah so you can learn from the failure of others that's what you're saying yeah. Yeah. great and maybe related to that as a last question do you have any specific recommendations for books or podcasts that our audience should listen to 
that you are really uh, enthusiastic about? Yeah, I would probably limit it to two. Um, so the first one is um, The Score Takes Care of Itself um, by Billy Walsh. You know this one? No. Um, so it's a it's a it's a football trainer, former football okay. trainer that has taken on the the I think the worst performing uh, football team in the in the NHL uh, NFL okay. a league back then, um, and um, and and this concept really circles. And then he has transformed that knowledge, and he led them to winning the Super Bowl. So it's a great it's a great story. Good to read. Um, <laughs> uh, circles a lot around how to. Um, how to not be too much distracted by what is going on on the left and the right. Yeah. So uh, the score takes care of itself, focus on what you're good at, focus on solving the problem, focus on, on the customer um, yeah. and, and uh, the results will follow. And uh, that's recommendation one. And then recommendation two um, is probably never split the difference, negotiate as if your life would depend on it, okay. um, which is a book written by, uh, a former FBI hostage negotiator. Um, <laughs> and uh, he also, after making like a super um, great career in the FBI, transformed into um, the business world. So he's uh, um, he's been hired many, many times by large corporations um, and they're using them for, for negotiations, M&A deals, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it provides you Thing I read it four or five times. It provides you with a really great tool set. Um, yeah, so it's one of the books where you can say, "Oh, I, I'll use this. I'll use this. I'll use that." Um, of how to negotiate uh, with people, uh, which um, again uh, is, as I was telling earlier, uh, almost as important as the selling part um, yeah. of it. Yeah, so probably can, can you give one example of a tool that you learned from the book and that you use in your negotiations? Um, it's uh, so one concept. Maybe it sounds a bit like stating the obvious, but but one concept um, is is really circling around making the other person uh, being really transparent about the, the the position that you are in. Yeah. So trying to pull the other person into your shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and say, look, these are the options that I have. This is. This is the the I don't know the the price range um, we're looking at. I'm I'm trying to be super transparent here with you, um, yeah. and uh, you got to put yourself in my shoes now. Blah 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 blah. And so and it's 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 really many of the concepts are really tangible, um, okay. and I uh, adapted using them, um, and it and it works. Perfect. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> I'm already intrigued to read that book now. <laughs> yes, Moritz. Um, I was not expecting that we would discuss like half of the time about culture with somebody that founded a logistics company, but actually I think it was very nice to hear how you're trying to establish that culture, what you're doing to do so, how it helps you to differentiate from customers. I think that's very valuable insights uh, for our listeners. So I would like to thank you for, for openly sharing these insights and I hope uh, you also enjoyed a bit of the talk. And to our listeners, uh, I hope you also enjoyed listening to this podcast, that you learned something from it, and hopefully we hear you again next time. Thanks for having Bye. me. Bye. Bye.